Lyndon okay. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. We are huge fans of your work. The first sister was one of our monthly picks for speculative fiction, and now the second rebel has just landed. Thank you so much for having me on Poured Over, and I am super hyped for everyone to have the second rebel in their hands and to continue the story of the first sister right where it left off. Before we get too deep into this conversation, I just want to warn listeners, we are going spoiler free because second rebel is two days old. <laughs> yeah, if you've read it in two days, I salute your power. We will say that some of your favorite characters from The First Sister are back. Leto, Hiro are back. There's a new character called Astrid, who some of you may have sussed out who Astrid is, but we really are going spoiler-free in this conversation. We're going to talk about a lot of big things and a lot of small things, but spoilers are not going to be something that we are talking about in this show. Before we go back to The First Sister series, can we talk about space opera for folks who may not know? what exactly that is? Absolutely. Space opera is, I would say, a subgenre of science fiction where you take the sci-fi aspects of space and you tell a fantastical story with it. So I like to think of it as kind of a meeting of worlds where sci-fi and fantasy clash, kind of like you have in Star Wars. How do the lightsabers work? I don't know, crystals. They had to make something up. But Let's be real. The Jedi are space wizards and the force is magic. So I feel like that best sums up space opera and maybe a bit of the Mass Effect series too, considering your ship can go from from Earth to Pluto in about one second. And I'm sure somebody somewhere has done the math on how the ships work in the First Sister. And I think space opera itself focuses less on the technical pieces of science and more on the story aspects. What makes a good story? And since I didn't want people to be spending years in a spaceship waiting to get places, I definitely skewed towards the space opera side of things. You're writing about rebellion and justice and independence and love. There's a lot happening in this series. It's hard for me to pick one thing. Oh, is it about feminism? Yeah, it's got some of that in there. Is it about Equality? Yeah. But it's hard to put my finger on one thing when so much of it was just a selfish writing of my worldview in a future aspect. Okay. We're totally coming back to that, but I have another question for you. A general question about sci-fi and fantasy right now, because it seems like readers are really having a moment with the genre and it's always been popular. Don't misunderstand me, but now it's booming in a way that we really haven't seen until very recently. And, and maybe Game of Thrones had a little bit to do with that, certainly. James Corey's The Expanse, Pierce Brown in Red Rising. And, and there's been a lot going on in that section of book publishing. But why do you think it is that readers are so drawn to these stories, especially now? I think... A lot of it was the gateway drug of Game of Thrones. People who had HBO might not have necessarily been into fantasy shows, but then everybody starts raving about this fantasy show and, and people were checking it out and watching it and realizing this is a lot of fun. So I do think the television acceptance of it has drawn people into reading. And I especially think that at least this has always been my experience that when things are tough in the world... I withdraw into the fictional world and as much fiction as I can get my hands on. So I think a lot of people have been finding courage and fun and love and independence that they would love to see in their daily lives. And they're finding it in the fiction they're reading. 
And I should mention too, Lee Bardugo and Cassie Clare and Suzanne Collins are all a big part of this momentum too. It's for sure, for sure. You know, We've had, you know, the Shadow and Bone series. I'd love to see a Graceling TV show, which I felt like I read something about that, or maybe it was just a dream that I had, <laughs> but I would love to see it. The second rebel picks up precisely where the first sister ends because you do cliffhangers so well. So thank you for making us wait. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, yeah. You know what? Here's, here's a one tiny spoiler for the second rebel. The cliffhangers don't stop. <laughs> I don't just take it easy on you in the second book. I'm just going to throw more cliffhangers awesome. at you. <laughs> Would you set up The Second Rebel for us and also a little bit of the series as a whole so people understand how these two books fit together story-wise? The First Sister initially came out of this crackpot idea that I had of what if there was the Athenians, these beautiful philosopher kings in space, and they were dedicated to science and advancement. And then there were these warlike people, and they were kind of the Spartans in space. And and of course, I, I read the Red Rising series, and I loved it. But the whole time I was reading it was very much, why aren't the pinks involved? Because they're the sexual class who constantly have so much thrust on their shoulders. And I kind of had a moment where I was like, I understand why why Pierce might not have have written something from a Pink's point of view. I, I get it. But I, as somebody who's faced sexual assault and rape culture, that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to see kind of what we could see from a sort of Pink's point of view in a world that is set in this kind of space Athens versus Sparta. And shouldn't our art reflect what's happening in our world around us? I mean, isn't our art partially how we process what's happening? I think it, it definitely does. I have a friend, uh, Rebecca Kwong, who wrote The Poppy War, and she has always mentioned, you know, I, I want to change things. And, the, and what I do is I'm a writer. So she writes things that she hopes can affect the world at large, but also things that she is wrestling with. And I think that's where I, I found some commonality with her in that, that I am wrestling with a lot of things that are society and things that I've internalized that I might not even realize that I've internalized from society. And writing these books is like having a conversation between the nicest parts of me and the darkest parts of me. So you started with Greek mythology as you're building out the world of the first Initially, sister. that was just the first kind of the seed, the okay. germ seed of it. And I did keep up with some of the Greek mythology sort of stuff. We have Icarus that lends the name to the Akari. And the first sister was actually a short story that I wrote. And the reason that the Juno is named the Juno is because it was exactly at the time when the Juno sat NASA satellite was passing by Jupiter. And I thought the pictures were cool. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to name it the Juno. And it's always been named that now. So I just kind of kept up with NASA naming conventions, which which lead itself to a, a kind of Greek and Roman influence. You also have four distinct communities. You've got the Ikari, you've got the Gaians, you've got now synthetics and mm -hmm. asters. Yes. And again, we're not giving away too much here by saying the conflict has gotten bigger. The stakes are higher. The sisterhood is still part of this story. So how do you sit down? Yes, you've started with this bare idea that came from Greek mythology, but how do you create the mythology of your world, of the world of the First Sister series? When I first started writing the First Sister series, it was very much just there are these Navy type ships on this space ocean, but they have these comfort women with them because when you're going to war away from your planet, 
you're going to be very lonely. And this kind of gave me the seed of the idea of what they could possibly offer on a ship and where the action could take place is is one ship. Then I had another idea of a story in the background of this really sad guy who had lost his partner and had to go find his partner and kill his partner. And I was playing with the idea of maybe I can try and write a short story based on this. Maybe I could turn the first sister into a novel And one day I was jogging and it kind of hit me like, it's the same damn story. It's just from the other side of the war. And I like almost tripped over a stick or something because I had to like turn around and run back home to like write things down because the realization was like a thunderbolt. Part of what I had been missing when I was trying to draft a novel of the first sister was the other side of the war. So I definitely wanted to kind of offer all these different sides because I I'm not a huge fan of these are the good guys. These are the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Everyone's in black and white. So when I was specifically building out the cultures, for instance, the Akari have a lot of things that I like. They have a yearly income for all people, just guaranteed yearly income. They have health insurance for all citizens. Love that. But they also have some really shitty policies that I would never want to be enacted on people. And of course, the, the Gaians have more bad policies than good. But as the series goes on, I'd like to kind of delve into where those decisions even came from and how these bad decisions are reached by people who are trying to just navigate a bad situation into something that's good, but maybe ends up perverted. I'm the queen of post-it notes. Anyone who works with me can tell you there are post-it notes everywhere. So how do you keep track of the nomenclature and the vocabulary? Do you have a massive spreadsheet? I have a world building Bible that Mm -hmm. is going on 20 something pages. And many of the words are, they're just saved in there. And a lot of it is based on, so I, I speak Spanish and I speak a bit of Japanese, which is partially why my characters also speak this because I didn't want to sound or have them sound like an idiot by picking a language I don't know, like French. <laughs> uh, later on, I do have a French guy and I had to constantly ask my French friend, does he sound like an idiot? So I took a lot of inspiration of how languages are set up from the Germanic English, the Romantic Spanish, and the Eastern tree of language from Japanese. So I tried to create something that was a little bit of everything. And then I wrote down whatever words I use so I wouldn't mess them up in the future. But yeah, so it took a little bit of everything. And then I I have everything in the world building Bible from a timeline. I think the timeline actually started when I first started writing First Sister back in 2016 or 2017. So the timeline starts whenever I started writing it and goes all the way until 2050 or something or two. 2505, I think it is, is the last date that I have in there. And so I just kind of found the point where I had the most interest in and went there. And I would love to write one day a dead century story with all the synthetics. I keep saying this as if one day, hopefully the publisher will hear me and make my dream come true. When you sat down to start The Second Rebel, Obviously, it's a little different when you're when you're working on the second volume of a series than the first, but let's talk about process for a second. When you're sitting down, whether it's a novel or a short story, do you start with an image? Do you start with a character? Do you start with an idea? Or do you just sit down and write the thing you want to read? A little bit of everything. With the first sister short story, I initially wanted to practice writing romance because I was at a, I was at a short fiction writing workshop and I realized that I couldn't write romance to save my life. But 
I wanted to have books that reliably told stories about love. But if you have a, like a story of people in love and they have no sort of friction between them, that's very boring. So I wanted to bring a kind of romantic thing to my critique partners at the workshop and be like, please help me learn how to write romance. Well, of course, me being me was like, I'm going to focus also on the fact that there are these priestesses who can't talk. And so this is a barrier to the romance and how these people are going against the law to communicate and fall in love. Apparently I can write romance or so says all the people at the workshop. And so they encouraged me to continue writing it and turning it into the longer fiction. But when it came to... For instance, the like Leto side of the story was very much, I thought of him, I had this image of him kind of standing before this general or this king and being tasked with hunting down his former partner and being shown his new partner. I didn't know who the characters were at the time. I didn't know who Leto was at that time. I didn't know who Ophira was at that point. I didn't know who the general slash king was, who has later become high commander Baron Valbellador. So I didn't really know what was going on in that society or who these people were. I just had the germ idea of, I want this sad guy to try and find and then have to kill his partner who he loves very much or his former partner who has now betrayed the society. Hero, on the other hand, was very much like Athena springing from the head of Zeus and they wouldn't shut up. And part of the acknowledgements in the first sister mentions, this book is not my child. This book is my noisy roommate who would not be quiet because it, it felt like I had to write it. Like I had several other story ideas that were like, I should focus on this and I could write this and I could not get Hero to shut up. So I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to give you some freedom to run. Here you go. I'm going to write your story and then you can maybe be quiet so I can focus on other things. But I feel like Hero having a force all their own has resonated with a lot of people too. When I first sold The First Sister, it sold as a trilogy and I was happy to write two more books. I had initially thought of it as a trilogy and was more than happy to oblige. The Hero chapters were not in the book. It was just First Sister and Leto. And Leto, we got to know Hero simply by Leto being sad, which is uh, how I always think of Leto is the brooding hero. And at the publishing house, they were like, can we have, can we have some hero chapters? And I was like, absolutely. So the book ended up going from, I think it was 80,000 words when I sold it to like 120 or something. I, I'm not sure how many it is now, but I, I'm always happy to write more. So wait, this means Leto was the first character who showed up then. The first sister was the first character uh, who showed up, but then okay. then Leto. So that stayed true. But then the recordings that Hero sends Leto was just kind of like this one tiny message that was like, I'm sorry. It wasn't like Leto listening to all of Hero's messages about their family and what they'd gone through. And so I had a lot of fun adding that part. I was actually on vacation in New Zealand when the publisher was like, hey, can you add these Hero chapters? no rush. I know you're like in New Zealand right now. And I like started immediately. Like I was supposed to be on vacation, but my brain was so ready to run with it. There are like pictures of me sitting in like Lord of the Rings looking fields with my laptop, like, -doo 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 -doo, like writing heroes chapters. So you knew this was going to be a series. Did you know it was going to be three books or did you just know it was going to be a series? In my brain, it was three books. And so when the publisher went to buy it and they said, we'd like to do a trilogy, I said, perfect. I can always write more if you would like more because I also have a prequel idea in my head. 
But as far as Leto, the first sister and hero story, it's a trilogy. By the time you're done, you're going to have written, what, 1,500 pages across, possibly more? Probably more because the first version of the second book and the first version of the third book, I kind of scrapped. (laughs) So I was not happy with how they had come out. But that just tends to be my writing process, I think. I'm telling myself the story the first go through. And then once I have told myself the story, then I am able to tell it to the readers. So it's very wild and messy. And a lot of things get trashed or I have like this dump folder full of things that I've cut that maybe one day they'll find the light of day and be used for something else. Or I'll have a line that I know I'm going to use. Like the first line I wrote for Luce, who is a POV character in the second book, the first line she ever got was one that's in one of her ending chapters. And once I had written that line, somehow I just knew where it needed to go from there. So my process is very chaotic. And I know you you said you're the post-it queen, but I'm holding post-its right here. And there are post-its in the back behind me. And I have this mental bandwidth that I like to write down the things that I know need to happen and then I'll just move them around. To flesh out a three-act story, we're kind of going to need a bad guy. We can't just have a bunch of scenes happening. So once I see the stuff that I really want to happen, then I'll go in and kind of fill in what I consider blanks of, you know, story structure and world building. So you're starting with story, essentially. I mean, the characters show up as they show up, but it sounds like the really the spine of the series is the story. Yeah, it's this it's the plot. And sometimes it is the characters. The first sister herself, she kind of came after I had come up with the sisterhood. And, you know, I wanted to think of who would be the most interesting sister to follow when it comes to this thing that I've built. But it's not always the case. Like with with Hero, Hero is Hero is Hero, and I had to build everything around Hero. If something clashed with Hero, Hero was going to demand that I change it. So (laughs) I felt like I was working with a Taylor Swift type character where it was like, they're very demanding, but they know what they want and they're going to get their way. I could try and write this outline, but I'm like, okay, now Hero is going to go do this. But if Hero didn't feel like doing that, it was not going to happen. Can you give us an example? I think we can avoid spoilers if we, we have an example here. I will. Yeah, I'll be I'll be as careful as possible because it especially happened in, in book two. Mm-hmm. Since Hero is now in the first sister, Hero sends messages back to Leto. And so it's not exactly a present POV. Whereas when we shift to the second rebel... Hero's on the ground and what Hero's doing is happening exactly at the time that other things are happening. So we're not getting a recording that happens after the fact. Hero is in the muck with everyone else. So when I was trying to get Hero to go and do a certain thing and Hero said, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to go in the other direction. (laughs) I would have to rewrite my outline. I, I knew basically where they were supposed to end up, but they would sometimes make me fight them to get there. Whereas Leto is my good child. I I always told Leto, like, I need you to do this thing, buddy. And he was like, sure, sure. So (laughs) Leto is the very responsible child. The first sister is too, to a degree. She would always just surprise me with how many weapons she had access to. I would end up writing myself into this sort of area. And then all of a sudden, well, now she has a knife. Okay. Okay. All right. Where did she's just got a knife now? Cool. (laughs) The first sister was your debut. And it is a page turning space opera. And you knew you were writing a series, you knew it was going to three books. But what did you learn writing the first book that you used in the second? I think it was that I have to tell myself the story first. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. because once I had the whole thing put out before me, then I could see sort of where I could go back and interweave these things and also connect it to the world building. And I had written novels before, but never with the kind of mindset that I got from the Odyssey writing workshop, which is uh, kind of where I went to workshop short stories. And I learned a ton from Jean Cavellos, who runs the workshop. And it, it's almost like she helped me unlock new pathways to my brain to where once I had the story out before me, I saw things like a map that I never knew I had before. And so when I was preparing to go into the second book, I knew from the first book, I needed the same sort of map to continue writing. Because I'm me, I thought of the first book very much as my like Star Wars. So book two is my Empire Strikes Back, which meant that the third book was my Return of the Jedi. So what I set up in book two, I knew I was going to have to pay off in book three. So I decided to outline them at the same time, not to necessarily write them at the same time, but to write them back to back as much as possible. I'd been talking to my editor and he was thinking, what's going to happen in book two and three? What do you see happening in these? And And here's what I think. And all his suggestions were like, all right, she's getting closer to her goal. She's, she's, you know, moving forward, Leto's moving forward, they're getting closer to what they want. And then in the third book, it can pay off. And because I'm no, this is Empire Strikes Back. I'm like, no one gets what they want. Everyone is sad. Everything is awful, because the Empire Strikes Back. And (laughs) that's very much what I modeled the second rebel on. But of course, that meant that all the mess I created in book two, I needed to fix in book three. So book three was definitely the one I needed the map for the most. So I could fix everything I'd broken. Has anything or anyone surprised you while you've been writing the series? It sounds like Hero just said, no, I'm not going to do <laughs> He's his own character. Yes. Yes. Hero likes to just do their own thing. The first sister as well, she has surprised me with how ruthless she can be. <laughs> and I think we get to see a lot of that coming to be in the second book. I always think of this quote by Nietzsche of when you fight monsters, Either you become a monster or, you know, you might lose. And I had always thought of that when First Sister is having to deal with the upper echelons of the sisterhood and who controls the people who control her, that she might have to become monstrous to fight these monsters. And what would that look like? So that was my thought process of how I began her story in book two and how it continues into the ending and into book three. Has writing these characters changed you? In a way, I feel like it freed me in a way, particularly writing Hero. And a lot of people have reached out to me and said, this one scene stands out to me of this person asking Hero, are you a boy or a girl? And Hero's like, both, neither, who cares? And that little tiny moment was the most freeing thing I felt I had ever written. And so much of it, as I as I mentioned earlier, was kind of this me playing with the darkest parts of me, fighting the lightest parts of me, and kind of having a discussion with myself about what's worthwhile in our society and what's not and what's working and what doesn't work. And can compassion really win or is it going to be stomped out by selfishness? And I've gotten to know myself more from writing these sorts of things of, is this what I really think? Or is this what society has taught me to think? And examining how we could be different or how we could be better. So it's been both freeing and interesting to look at 
I guess my psyche, my, my psychiatrist said he was going to read my books. And I was like, Oh Lord, I don't even want to come to the sessions. If you're going to like, you're going to have a field day, sir. Good luck. Do you have a favorite character? I always say no. And it's, it's like, Oh, I love my children equally, but I have, I don't know. I have like a soft spot for Sorrel who is in book two very, and, and I have like a soft spot for a lot of the minor characters too. I'm like, I have a soft spot for so for Soji Val Acura. Who's the bad guy. Like he's, he's like undisputedly a bad guy, but he was a lot of fun to write and warlord Vaughn. He's just a nice little old man. But I mean, he, he murders a lot of people. I don't know. I just have like a weird soft spot for people who they're evil, but they have like some weird compassionate big pieces to them too. Like they're not total losses. My favorite character to write is Leto because he's very easy to write for. Like I said, he's my good child and the others are my my bad children. But writing hero is also fun. The first sister is definitely the hardest one to write for. Hero will go off on their own, but at least they're going to tell me they're going to go off on their own and telegraph what they're planning. The first sister felt like I was trying to like negotiate with someone who was super secretive. So there were things I felt like I didn't know about her until she was ready to tell me. Until it came down to something necessary, she was going to hold on to it like a little pearl and she wasn't going to hand it over. You and I have talked a little bit about some of the books that fit into the universe of the First Sister. So Pierce Brown's Red Rising series, Lee Bardugo's Grishaverse novels, certainly. R.F. Kwong, Rebecca Kwong, your friend, writes under the name R.F. Kwong. Mm-hmm. And she's got a series with the Poppy War. Babel is coming out. Uh, well, I'm- Babel's coming out next year. It's super good. It's super good. It's so, so good. Her second book is The Dragon Republic, and the third one is The Burning God. She's great. All of them are really terrific. And Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale certainly oh, for has sure. an echo. In- and Oryx and Crake, too. Like, I'm kind of just like this Margaret Atwood fan. I just have all of her books, her short stories. I have some of her poetry. I have, if she writes it, I'm like, put it in my eyeballs. So definitely have to cite her as a huge inspiration for mm-hmm. all of it. So we know how they fit into the world of the first sister and the second rebel. But do you remember the book that made you really want to be a reader? I have to travel through time. I was kind of that kid who spent as much time in the library as possible. I grew up in a very, very small southern town and we didn't have anything to do. Like we didn't even have a Walmart close by. Like it was, we would drive 15 minutes to go to the McDonald's when we could to go to the the play place. So my kind of like play world became the library and it was my first time ever interacting with computers and my first time ever interacting with like shelving systems. And my mom had always kind of just thought like, there's nothing bad that could come out of a book. So just let her read whatever she wants. We're just not going to pay attention to to what she brings home really. And so that was kind of my free world because I, I did grow up in a very small town. I grew up in a very religious closed-minded society and the and the books were that was my escape from the get-go. I remember sneaking the Harry Potter books to be real honest with you, which now, you know, I I have a lot of negative feelings towards J.K. Rowling, but I remember reading the Harry Potter books. I re- remember reading like Dragon Riders of Pern and the Goosebumps books and the Sabriel books, anything that I could get my hand on that was like fantastical or science fiction or even like historical fiction. I don't even remember the name of the person who wrote it, but it was this series about the Egyptian gods and I just loved it. So anything that 
had this kind of unknown element to it, this fantastical world of magic that lies beneath our surface, I was totally game for. I would read as much as I possibly could. Do you remember when you first realized you wanted to be a writer? I think I knew I wanted to be a writer since the time I was nine or 10. But at the time, I also was super into drawing. So I would doodle these little books and stories and give them to my mom. And then around age 11 or 12, they kind of became like comics. So I would draw these comics and pass them around to my friends. But I was always writing something. I think I tried my hand at my first novel when I was 15. And that's some garbage that I'll never see the light of day. I definitely found some of my old writing at one point and was thinking, good Lord, that's awful. But I always wrote, even when I went to college and I decided to focus on like marketing and graphic design because my brain was wired to think, okay, we got to think about how we make money before we think about anything else. We know what it is to be poor. We're not going to be, we're not going to be poor. So I never took writing seriously. I did take some creative writing classes, but I mostly focused on business writing which the stars kind of aligned and social media writing for businesses became really big around the time that I graduated. And so I became the social media marketing graphic designer expert. You're all in house. I've got what you need sort of a thing when those jobs were very, very new. But the whole time I was writing stuff and I don't think I realized until I was about 21 or 22 that I could actually publish a book. I could actually write a book and publish it. And, and maybe that could be my living. And once I had gotten stable in a job, that's when I allowed myself the room to stretch out and consider what it might be like to write a book and to be a writer. So I gave myself permission at that point to give it a try. And if it didn't work, hey, I'd already got my day job. I could stick to graphic design. And as much as I hated going into the office and wearing long sleeve shirts and button ups and yada, yada, I, I could play nice. I could keep playing nice with people. So it was really, it was really around when I was 23, I think was when I first decided to have a, a serious go at it. And then 10 years later, here we are. <laughs> So is that the advice you'd give other writers who are just starting out? Just just give it a try and see what happens. I mean, you said you took Absolutely. a few classes, but... Absolutely. I, as a writer, you have to give yourself permission to write what you feel you want to write. And I have a ton of friends who are writers and who give me the like greatest editorial advice ever. And they write fan fiction. And that's all they write. And that's all they want to write. And that's cool. They're still writers because there's no real writer in air quotes. There's no real way to be a writer. It's just about writing something that you feel you need to write and then connecting it with an audience. And you just have to give yourself permission to take those risks and to write outside your comfort zone to a point and to be selfish with your, with your time and your writing. Sure, yeah, there's definitely things you can learn when you pick up a book about three-act stories and how to make interesting bad guys and, and believable dialogue. But there's, there's th some things that you've got to bring to the genre yourself that you've got to bring to writing and that it's your voice. Otherwise, if you're just going to repeat things that have already happened or repeat someone else's voice, there's not really a point to writing, is there? Has your voice evolved with each book or do you feel like you had a handle on it when you started The First Sister? I think there was always the seed that was there for my voice and that it's gotten stronger with each thing I write. I would hate to say, oh, I finished book three and it looks exactly like book one because I'm that person who 
yearns for my next thing to be the greatest I've ever done. I want to be a better writer. I want to write, I want to have these beautiful poetic sentences. And I'm, I'm going to challenge myself in this one to not even use the word blinked throughout the entire novel. Or I, you know, I, I set tiny challenges for myself to see what, what I can do. And I think I've evolved as a writer and I'm, I'm quite happy with that evolution too. We are too. when you finish one of your big epic first drafts that you know are just sort of you writing for yourself and whatnot what's the next step do you show that to your own set of readers before you go to say your agent or your editor or I have a first reader who is my partner in every sense of the word I met him at the Odyssey writing workshop and he was my first reader there and he reads literally everything I write and He's very succinct at knowing my voice and what I'm trying to say with this. And, and he'll sometimes read it and stop and go, what were you trying to say with this scene? And I'll kind of explain, well, she's trying to get her point across, but she can't admit the fact that she's wrong. And, and he'll be like, it doesn't work. He knows what I'm trying to say. And he also will tell me like when I'm being lazy on my world building, he'll, he'll call me on it and be like, you just really took this from X culture and can't just be lazy like that. You really need to, it needs to make sense in the whole course of the world. It can't just be this random facet that you think is interesting. So he definitely calls me on my BS when I'm, when I'm being lazy or when something doesn't make sense. I feel like I owe everything to my to my first reader, him, my beta readers, and my sensitivity readers. They are the ones who made everything make sense because I definitely was just like, wee, I'm having fun. And it shows. You are wrestling with some big themes and some terrible things happen to some very nice people and then some terrible things happen to some terrible people. It's quite excellent. <laughs> yes, I love. Bad things are going to happen to everybody. That's, that's reality. And then good things happen to bad people and we hate it, but... That happens too. Can we go back to your sensitivity readers for a minute though? You went ahead and just hired them on your own. You just said, this is something I want to do. I did. Yeah. I did it before I had even really went out and started querying for agents. And then once I had added the hero POV, I specifically went and hired another person who was a queer Japanese person to take a look at heroes POV because I had had Japanese sensitivity readers. I'd had queer sensitivity readers, but I wanted somebody specifically to help me focus in on hero to make sure that I wasn't putting anything of my stereotypical, I'm a white person. I don't want to have any kind of my lingering racisms come out through the book. So I wanted my sensitivity readers to be able to call me on my BS if that was indeed what needed to happen. Because I am trying to represent multiple cultures and multiple peoples. And I never came out of the gate saying this is like an own voices book. I am bisexual like the first sister, but I'm not cisgender. I'm poor like Lido, but I'm I'm not a man. I'm non-binary like Hero, but I'm not Japanese. So I knew I wanted to have several different kind of people coming together. And I wanted to make sure that I was doing a service to all the people involved. And that definitely included hiring beta readers and sensitivity readers for several different things. And hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it has, it has worked. Again, I owe everything to them and anything that's bad is totally my fault. <laughs> what do you want readers to know before they start reading The Second Rebel? 
The second rebel is dedicated in a sense to everybody who deals with chronic pain or who deals with an invisible illness or even a a present illness. Because throughout the writing of this book, I was in physical therapy and it was a very frustrating time for me. And it just felt like I kept hitting a wall, which several characters kind of have a storyline of dealing with pain, dealing with disabilities, invisible disabilities, or physical disabilities, mental, or they are struggling with one thing or another. And I felt like in a way, I was also wrestling my my demons with my physical therapy. And then when I finally had like this one moment where we found something that worked, and I had like this one pain-free day, it was like walking on, on sunshine. I mean, like that was that song, Walking on Sunshine, like could not have summed it up any better. But of course, as soon as that happens, there's the fear of the pain will come back, right? This this doesn't get to be happy-go-lucky time. I get, I get to have anxiety now about whether I'm going to hurt again. So that's very much the second rebel, I think. I dedicated the book to my brother, but I also dedicate the book to anybody who's had to deal with these sorts of things. And I'll mention here, you have turned in the third volume. (laughs) I have. The third book is done. I've turned it in. I'm waiting on line edits. But for the most part, I think the, the story itself is pretty much hammered out and ready to roll. That's so exciting. Lyndon Lewis, thank you so much. We're huge fans of The First Sister and The Second Rebel, and we can't wait for readers to revisit your world. Thank you so much for having me, everybody at Barnes & Noble, and pour it over. Pour it over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.